You can take your Bibles and turn them to the book of John chapter 2, John chapter 2. If you don't have Bibles, uh, we've got plenty that are uh, under the seats in front of you, around you, these black Bibles here, and you'll find John chapter 2 on page 834, John chapter 2. As we continue our Advent sermon series, Glimpses of Jesus, where my main aim has been that we would experience a superior Christmas by enlarging our vision of Jesus through select stories in John's gospel that are there to help us see and savor His glory more. Now, Jesus did many miracles. The miracles we don't know about actually number more than the miracles that we do know about. And John was very purposeful about which miracles he included and which he leaves out. He says as much at the end of the book, which is why it may surprise some that John did not leave out the one that we are about to read today. Uh, When you compare this to other miracles of Jesus, like the healing of a blind man or walking on water or raising a dead man from the grave, this one doesn't seem to be on the same level. Yes, changing water into wine is impressive, but on the surface, it seems like all that Jesus is doing is preventing some embarrassment to the host of a party. What's the big deal? So the party is extended because there are now more beverages. Who who cares about that? And yet, when John wants to give us our very first impression of Jesus in his earthly ministry, he chooses this moment. He chooses this miracle. And Jesus chooses this moment and this miracle to be the very first one to inaugurate his public ministry. And John actually doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a sign, a sign. Now think about that. What's the purpose of a sign? A sign is meant to point us to something beyond the sign itself. So, for example, if you are driving down the road and you see a stop sign, the purpose of the sign is not so that you can admire the bright red coloring and the font of the lettering and, that, and that's it. Instead, the purpose is to get your attention and communicate to you something very specific. And if you admire the sign and miss the message, well, that could be problematic and dangerous. Likewise, the signs of Jesus, the signs that Jesus does are not an end to themselves. If we, if we walk away from this story thinking, wow, how cool it is that Jesus stepped in and helped out these folks at a party with a neat miracle, and that's all you walk away with, you're focusing too much on the sign, and you're missing the meaning and the message of the sign. And when we take a closer look at this sign of Jesus and we discern its meaning, we're going to discover that this is actually the perfect way for Jesus to begin His earthly ministry because everything that is most significant about Jesus in respect to who He is and the work that He came to do is in this first miracle, in this sign. So, let's together now see the sign and discern its meaning. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect Word of our God. This is John chapter 2. We'll start at verse 1 and read on down through verse 11. Apostle John writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would accomplish through this word this morning what was accomplished in that moment when your son did this sign at this wedding in Cana. I pray that we would see your glory. We would catch a glimpse of your beauty and glory through this text. And I also pray that as we think through this sign and meditate on this sign together as a congregation, that it would stir up greater belief and faith in us. And I pray for those who may be here who uh, don't know you at all, uh, that this text of all texts might be the one that you would use to speak to someone's heart and change that heart. And so we look forward to seeing what you're going to do in the next few minutes as we take a closer look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So this story, um, like a movie or a play, you could, you could divide it up really into three acts and three scenes. And in act one, we have an occasion of great joy, an occasion of great joy. Look again at the, the first verse here. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, in our culture today, in America, a wedding can be a festive occasion. But, but typically in America, we go to a wedding, we maybe celebrate for an hour or two, and we go home. And then the bride and the groom They go off and disappear on a honeymoon. And so compared to first century Jews, I got to tell you that we Americans are pretty dull and pretty boring. It would be hard to overstate how big of a deal a wedding was in in the first century Jewish world. Uh, It it was the the climactic moment of really a long process. Uh, A man and a woman first would become betrothed, and during the betrothal period, the woman would still live with her parents, and the man would go and prepare a place for his bride, prepare a home, uh, uh, often in addition to his father's house. And after many months, perhaps a year, when the place was prepared and all was ready, then came the wedding. And the wedding was a joyous, community-wide event. 
First, the bridegroom and his friends would make their way to the bride's house by night. So there would be a spectacular, blazing torchlight procession through the village. Then they'd collect the bride, and with the bridegroom and their friends, they would, again by torchlight, with a canopy over the heads of the bride and groom, make their way back to the place that the groom had prepared. And they would take the longest route possible so that everyone in the village could witness this procession and have a chance to enjoy and celebrate. And when they get to the place that the groom had prepared, they would be officially wed. And then that would launch a time of feasting and dancing and music and merrymaking, not for a couple of hours and not for one night. No, this wedding feast could last up to a week, a week of partying, y'all. And the bride and groom would essentially have open house. (laughs) Now, as we consider this, I do think it's important to consider something else. Namely, that Jesus was invited to this party, and evidently Jesus was happy to be present and participating in it. Indeed, not only participating, but through the creation of wine, actually helping to keep the party going. But through the… but though the… but… but… as, you, as we think about this, it's, there's, a, there's a contrast here between Jesus and, and, and others of his day. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, rightly observes that this story marks Jesus out as far removed from the monastic asceticism of hermit communities like Qumran. Uh, Carson is referring there to religious groups like the Essenes. Uh, who were desert-dwelling monks who isolated themselves from people, living an ascetic lifestyle, and they were so unlike Jesus. Jesus, who, by the way, was criticized by his opponents as one who came eating and drinking. The Essenes would not be seen as a people who would enjoy partying for a whole week. Uh, If anyone could actually find their address in the desert, they never would have even received a party invitation because no one would expect anyone like them to show up at a party, unlike Jesus, which may shatter some stereotypes that some of you might have about Jesus. Some of us tend to view Jesus as non-human, as an extremely stoic emotionless robot. Jesus is kind of, kind of floating above the circumstances of life, not really interested in what regular people are interested in, and therefore he himself not very interesting, kind of like some of those older movies about Jesus where he always kind of looks spacey and, and just not all there, or he looked like he was on the verge of tears all of the time, just a real downer to be around. That's not how Jesus was. A few weeks ago, I made a statement that I think grabbed some of y'all when I said, namely, that God is the happiest person in the universe. He's a God of joy. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 1 refers to God as the blessed or happy God. And so, when God came to earth as a man, He continued to be the happy God. And I have no doubt that Jesus was laughing and clapping with the music, and and I could imagine him cheering this couple on as the torchlight procession went by. Maybe he was even dancing, which I know is scandalous to some Baptists. Jesus was involved in the party. 
He was engaged with the people. He was interested in people. He, he didn't just set himself off in a corner, gathered about with his disciples in a holy huddle. Surely he, he talked and he socialized and he celebrated with others. And he was a delight to be around at occasions like this because he was the happy God man. He wasn't shedding gloom everywhere unlike many religious people. Maybe you've noticed that, that sometimes religious people seem to be the least happy people around. They, they are scowling, and they dare not let a smile crack their faces, and they have no sense of humor and never any levity. And then they're like, don't you want to be like one of us? Uh, no, not really. I wonder if sometimes we here at Harbin's have been that way. No joy, no delight. I wonder if we ever give off that impression to the world. Are we ever standoffish with our, our neighbors, with others in the community, as if being a Christian means staying aloof from sinners? Charles Spurgeon, once seeking, uh, speaking to young ministers, uh, said that he knew of pastors that were so stoically aloof that no particle of humanity was visible in them. And Spurgeon exhorted these young pastors, and he told them that a man who is to do much with men must love them and feel at home with them. An individual who has no geniality about him had better be an undertaker and bury the dead, for he will never succeed in influencing the living. It's a good word, not just for people who want to be pastors. But to all believers who are to be evangelists and salt and light in a dark world where God has sent us forth to influence souls for Christ. If Jesus is the happy God, then should not we in our pursuit of Christ's likeness exude some of his happiness as well? So we see here Jesus uh, involved in this wedding. It's an occasion of great joy, but then that brings us to act two, which is uh, we encounter a problem that threatens joy, a problem that threatens joy. In verse three, we see that something terrible has happened in the midst of these festivities. The wine runs out before the feast is over. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but this was quite serious in first century Jewish culture. Hospitality was of the utmost importance, and both honor and shame were extremely significant. And these Jewish weddings, the bridegroom and perhaps the groom's father would have been responsible for the supply of wine, and the lack of supply would have been an extreme offense to the guest at hand. Indeed, to not supply enough wine could not only bring lasting shame and embarrassment to the family, but it could even open them up to a lawsuit. This was a serious situation. Well, Mary, Jesus' mother, gets wind of this. It makes me wonder if perhaps Mary was related to this family and was assisting them maybe in the area of hospitality. But regardless, she, she discovers that the well has run dry, so to speak. And therefore, this joyous and celebratory occasion is on the brink of disaster. And so, in the wake of this crisis, she comes to Jesus and informs him of the bad news. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, it could be that Mary is just informing Jesus on what's happening and nothing more. But I think there's something more going on here. I think there's an implication between the lines that Mary is coming to Jesus for help, and, and that she's expecting him to do something about the problem. Uh, maybe you've witnessed this in, in mother-child relationships before, where mom might make a statement to the child, but it's, but, but, but it's more than just a, a statement of fact. 
there, there, is, a, there is a request there uh, for something uh, as well. And, uh, and this, I think, is going on here. It's hard to know exactly what Mary was expecting from Jesus, but she certainly was expecting something. And we know eventually Jesus does something. And some interpreters, particularly those um, of, a, of a Catholic nature who tend to exaggerate Mary's importance, have seen this as a proof text supporting the idea that Mary is a sort of co-mediator. Uh, that is taught in, in, in Catholic realms. She, she's kind of a, a co-mediatrix, so to speak, that if you want help from Jesus, go to Mary, and then Mary will go to her son because she, due to her close relationship with Jesus, can influence him. You want something from, from, from Jesus, go to, go, go to the mom, and, and she'll take care of that. Now, now, while it is true that Mary knows the true identity of Jesus and that she, as her mother, is requesting help from Jesus, this text does not teach us that Mary has special influence on Jesus. It actually teaches us the exact opposite. Look at Jesus' response in verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, that seems a bit cold, doesn't it? What's going on here? I mean, can you imagine moms asking your kids to do something, and they say, woman, what does this have to do with me? I don't think I would go over very well. And kids, I don't recommend trying that at home for the sake of your own safety. This, uh, this cultural context, however, uh, Jesus addressing Mary as woman was not rude. It would have been more like calling her ma'am. It's not rude, but it's not the warmest and most endearing way to address her. Jesus is politely but abruptly distancing her, himself from her. Uh, this is further evidenced by Jesus' question. He says, what does this have to do with me? That's a Jewish idiom. Um, it literally is translated, what to me and to you. It's not rude, but it is distancing. As far as its specific meaning, and idioms can always be challenging to, to translate from one language into the other language, but if you're using an ESV Bible, which I think most of you are, I don't think what does this have to do with me is the best translation. The CSB version of the Bible, which I think a couple of you here have, CSB gets uh, a little closer to the mark as it translates it as, what does this have to do with you and me? But even closer is the old King James Version, which says, woman, what have I to do with thee or with you? That gets to the heart of it, I think. In other words, as far as this matter is concerned, what do you and I have in common? You have no claims on me in this. He's, he's suggesting here that there is something out of bounds in what Mary is doing. He's, he's actually rebuking his mother, however gently. And Jesus, in distancing himself from Mary, is showing us here that Mary, despite her special role in giving birth to Jesus, does not have some sort of inside track with Jesus. In fact, throughout his ministry, Jesus goes through great pains to downplay the significance of physical family ties. And he instead holds up obedience and submission to God the Father as the most significant thing. Remember what he said, whoever does the will of my father is my, my brother and my sister and my mother. His, 
his sonship to Joseph and Mary must take a back seat to his sonship to God. And, and Jesus here is suggesting that Mary is intruding in a do, into a domain that she has no business intruding in. Uh, these matters are between him and his father. Now, why is he thinking this way? What's wrong with asking Jesus for help? I think that Jesus gently rebukes his mother, not, not because she is asking him to step in and, and help save the party. Saving the party is what Mary is thinking. But something more was on Jesus' mind that day. And we know that because Jesus tells Mary, my hour has not yet come. In the book of John, you're going to see that phrase quite a bit as you read through it, my hour, my hour. talks about that a lot. When Jesus talks about my hour, he's referring to his ultimate glorification through submission to his Father's will in his atoning work on the cross. Mary is thinking beverages. Jesus is thinking death, burial, resurrection, and glorification. And by the way, this is also something that happens often in the book of John, where Jesus is talking with someone, and they are thinking on one plane, usually on a physical plane, and Jesus is thinking something completely different on a, on a spiritual plane. And there's something about the lack of wine and the provision of wine that triggers in Jesus' mind thoughts of His hour. Jesus, in his response to Mary, is essentially saying, Mary, you don't fully understand what you're asking. A provision of wine is closely associated with my hour, and that is a domain you cannot intrude into. That's between my Father and me. And my hour has not yet come, but nevertheless, I will graciously give you a picture, a glimpse, a sign that will point you to my hour. But I'm going to do it in my way. And so that leads to act three, which is, there it is, a solution that restores joy, a solution that restores joy. Jesus takes water, and he does something amazing. He transforms it into wine. First, notice the storage vessels that Jesus chooses to use for this. Verse six says, these jars are used for the Jewish rites of purification. So the Jews had all kinds of religious rituals that were thought to facilitate spiritual cleansing and purification, and they were obsessed with these rituals, these cleaning rituals. And so the religious leaders, the Pharisees, deemed you to be spiritually unclean if you would not engage in the ritualistic washing of your hands, your utensils, your cups, your plates before a meal. So this isn't, this isn't about sanitation. You know, wash your hands before you eat. Wash, make sure you're eating off of a clean plate. That's not, that's not what this is. This is uh, taking utensils that, that are already clean and, and, and giving them this ritualistic washing and doing that with your hands as well. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees confront Jesus and they self-righteously ask, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat with defiled hands? They were very offended by this. You know, that's not too far removed from how many people live today. Many, many put their trust in external rituals and practices with the hope that that will make us right with God. Maybe it's not ritualistic, uh, the washing of the hands, but it may be good deeds or church attendance or 
being baptized or having a certain lifestyle, whatever it might be, with the idea that doing the right things will earn favor with God and take care of their sins. And Jesus regards that to all be useless and vain, which makes it all the more interesting that he sets his eye on these purification vessels and chooses to use them as the means of his provision. He didn't have to do that. John didn't have to tell us these details about the containers that he's using. Jesus actually could have used empty wine containers. There's evidently lots of them because they're out of wine. So why not just use those? He could have used regular pitchers uh, used for regular drinking water. But he passes over all of those other options and he turns his attention to these purification jars which held 20 to 30 gallons of water. Now, in the minds of the Jews, this would have been a strange thing, kind of like if you have a bunch of guests over and you use the bathtub to hold their beverages. Uh, Even more more than strange, it would have even been a little bit scandalous for Jesus to put drinking water in these purification jars, containers that in Jesus' mind served served a useless purpose for the people as far as purification is concerned. And then Jesus tells the servants to fill those jars to the brim and draw some of this liquid out and give it to the master of the feast to taste. The master of the feast probably was someone who would have been maybe hired out by the, by the groom uh, or the father of the groom, maybe a relative that's in charge of looking after all of this. They give it out, give it to the master of the feast and And this water is transformed into wine, and and not just any old wine, but spectacular wine, Uh, the very best wine. Now, don't forget, John tells us in verse 11 that this is a sign, and and this is a sign that is connected with his hour. Uh, It's connected with his sacrificial death. And what does Jesus' death ultimately provide for his people? It provides purification. The Apostle John writes in a different book, in in 1 John 1, verse 7, that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Indeed, it is the only thing that can purify us from our sins, not our good deeds, not our religions, not our our rituals, not jumping through a bunch of religious hoops, only Jesus' blood. Uh, As the wine that Jesus provides is superior to that old water and those purification jars, so the blood of Jesus is infinitely superior to the Jewish rituals and ceremonies in regards to the cleansing of sin. And, And it's infinitely superior to any good work or religious deed that you might do. You and I have come into this world stained and dirty and tainted by sin, and there is no work, there is no religious act, there is no ceremony that can remove sin's stain and sin's guilt from us. Only the blood of Jesus provides true and ultimate purification from our sins. That's why Jesus came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Christmas means nothing without that purification that Jesus intends to provide at the cross. Jesus shed his blood and paid the death penalty for sins so that all who believe in him would not have to pay for their own sins in hell forever. And so, that's why we sing with great joy, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus.
Only Jesus' blood purifies us from sin. But it's not just purification from sins that we need. We also need transformation. Not just purification, but transformation. Thinking again back to Mark chapter 7, where the Pharisees confront Jesus about his disciples who dare to not participate in the, uh, in the purification ritual washings before eating. Jesus then turns to these Pharisees and he says to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honored me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In other words, the Pharisees focused on outward, external, religious appearance, and they totally neglected their wicked hearts. And Jesus goes on to tell them that unwashed hands don't defile anybody. It's the heart that's defiled. Uh, From our evil, sinful hearts come all of our sin. And if it's the heart that's defiled, washing your hands isn't going to do anything. What they needed was not another external ritual. That's not what we need. You can go to church every day. You can attend Bible study. You can give tons of money to the church. You can fast weekly. You can teach Sunday school class. You can go on mission trips. You can be a pastor preaching in the pulpit and be totally corrupt in your heart and on your way to hell. We don't need more rules. We need a new heart. And that requires a renewal, a recreation, a new creation. And this is another theme that pops up everywhere in the book of John. As early as the first chapter, remember we looked at this a a couple of weeks ago, as early as the first chapter, the apostle begins his book demonstrating that Jesus is the creator which sets up his point through the rest of the book that Jesus is then also the agent of the new creation. And we're going to unpack these themes even more next week when we look at John chapter 3 and and, and we look at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus about being born again. But it's not insignificant that before we get to chapter 3 and this discussion on being born again that we have here in chapter 2, Jesus' first miracle being a sign of recreation. As this old water is being totally transformed and recreated into new wine. And in this, Jesus, in this sign, Jesus is showing what his ministry is all about, what his coming hour is all about. Jesus has the power to take old sinful hearts and make them new. The Apostle Paul, later on in Scripture, says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. The miracle of turning water into wine is impressive, no doubt. Nobody here can do that. But many, many years ago in the fall of 1991, I witnessed an even bigger miracle than that when God took my old rebellious heart, a heart that hated God and pursued after lesser things. He took that heart and he totally recreated it so that now I actually want to follow God. I I want to love God, and he continues to change and renew my heart day by day because there's more more renewal, there's more change that needs to to happen. Scripture talks about salvation in, in three different ways. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And I was saved in the fall of 1991 as as God came in and did a new work in my heart. And he's continuing to do that new work even now. And I look forward to the 
full climactic consummation of that work in heaven, where it will be completely transformed and perfect. I know that He's worked that same miracle in the hearts of many folks in this room today, and if He hasn't done that to you, then I pray that today He would, that, that He would begin that recreative work in you. Jesus' hour, this, 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 this great hour that Jesus anticipates, the hour of His death, burial, and resurrection will provide purification it will provide recreation, but it also will provide something else. It will provide for Jesus a bride. It's hard to imagine that being at a wedding, you know, you think about this. When, if, if, if you're single or when you were single, when, when you were at a wedding, what was it hard to not think about if you want to be married? <laughs> it's hard not to think about your own wedding and what that might be like, and what that might look like, and, and, and thinking about your, your future spouse. It's hard to imagine that being at a wedding, Jesus is not thinking of His own bride and His own wedding feast to come at the end of the age. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus describes Himself as the bridegroom. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that the ultimate purpose of earthly marriage is for it to be a living parable of the relationship Jesus has with His bride, the church. If you are married, please know that marriage is ultimately not about you. Almost no one believes that today, even Christians, but that, that, that's true. That, that the essence of marriage, it is meant to be a picture and a parable of this love relationship that Jesus has with His church. In the book of Revelation, which was also written by the Apostle John, we get a glimpse of a great wedding feast to come, the greatest of all wedding feasts. Revelation 19 says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But for now, in John 2, His hour has not yet come. But He would use this little wedding feast in an obscure little Jewish town called Cana to demonstrate to Mary and to His disciples and to us that in addition to being a sin purifier and a heart recreator, He's also the perfect, all-providing, never-failing bridegroom. The wine running out of this wedding feast, at this wedding feast was a huge deal, not just because of the association of wine with hospitality or the possibility of lawsuits or those sorts of things, but, but also in the Jewish religious mindset, wine had a symbolic meaning, and it was associated with joy and great blessing. For example, Psalm 104 says this of God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Or I think about uh, Proverbs chapter 3, uh, it talks about honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce, uh, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. There, there is this constant symbolism in the Bible of wine and, and prosperity and, and joy and those sorts of things. Um, because of the deep connection that wine had with joy, uh, the, the rabbis had a saying where there is no wine, there is no joy. 
The abundance of wine had rich messianic meaning also. Uh, The Jews looked forward to a grand golden age where the Messiah would come and bring abundant provision and life to the people, and part of the symbolism used by the Old Testament prophets to describe the Messianic age uh, was an overabundance of wine. And so you have Joel 3.18, and in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Or you have Isaiah 25, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine." well-refined. And wine also is used in connection with salvation and the forgiveness of sins and and the deep abiding soul satisfaction that is found in God alone. I love Isaiah 55, which talks about this. Isaiah says, uh, God says in Isaiah, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In, in other words, God gives this freely. You're, you're buying, but it's, it's free. At least it's free for you. It wasn't free for God. It happened at the cost of His Son. But it goes on to say, why do you spend your money? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food, incline your ear, and come, come to me here that your soul may live. Isaiah is saying that we spend our lives on all kinds of things that, while they might give us some sort of temporary pleasure, they don't satisfy our deepest needs. Some of us try to gain that satisfaction in actual physical wine. My dad, in his alcoholism, destroyed his family and ruined his life. There may have been some temporary satisfaction there, but in the end it was vain and led to destruction. Some try to gain that satisfaction in other things like money or power or sex or relationships outside of God. And and some, like so many of the religious people in Jesus' day and today, believe that that joy and, and, and satisfaction of the soul will be found if only I can do enough good things to ease my conscience. If only I can work hard enough and check off all the re- right religious boxes and do all of the right things, then I will be happy. But it never works, which is why religious people sometimes are the most miserable of people, because Nothing they can do can ultimately ease their conscience. There is always one more act to do. There is always one more thing that needs to be done. It's never enough. There is a reason why the Pharisees kept going back to the purification washings over and over and over again because it was insufficient. But whether you are indulging in futile religion or vain immorality, Isaiah is telling us here in this text, why why do that? Why, why labor for things that don't satisfy? Why, why spend your life? Why waste your life? Why are you pouring your life into these things? God is the, the purest thirst-quenching water. God is the most fulfilling bread, and He is the finest wine. God is the only thing and the only person that can satisfy the deepest aches and cravings of your soul. And so now the wedding feast is on the brink of disaster, and Mary comes to Jesus and says they have no wine. She may well have said they have no joy. The joy has run out. And remember, who's responsible for the provision of wine? The bridegroom was. 
And, and here, the groom blew it. Like all sinful husbands, <laughs> all sinful husbands blow it one way or another. He's probably thankful that his name is not in the text here. But Jesus, thinking about his hour, thinking about his bride, steps in and does what sinful grooms cannot do. He provides perfect, abundant, never-failing, overflowing provision. Remember, this sign is not just a, this miracle is not just a miracle, it's a sign. It's a sign, it's pointing to something. It's pointing beyond the miracle and is meant to show us things about Jesus and what He provides. All of the things that are bound up in the symbolism of wine, joy, blessing, gladness, prosperity, satisfaction, salvation. This is the type of wine that Jesus provides that He purchased for His bride on the cross. And in this miraculous, abundant provision, Jesus is showing us that unlike that groom in Cana, Jesus is the perfect, abundantly providing bridegroom who will never fall short of providing everything that's needed in lavish abundance. Jesus provides joy in abundance. It says in John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He provides blessing in abundance. Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He provides us abundant spiritual prosperity. As we see in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He provides abundant satisfaction. Jesus said to her in John chapter 4, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He provides abundant life. John chapter 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He provides abundant grace. Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And He provides us abundant, unfailing, unending love. Romans chapter 8, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a great and glorious bridegroom we have who richly provides everything we need and even provides an abundant excess. His sin-purifying death was the price, the ransom he paid for a dirty, tattered, filthy bride, and through his recreative power, he takes this bride, he gives her a new heart, he cleans the dirt off, he gives her new clothes, and makes her beautiful. And so, is it any wonder that when the angels announce the birth of the Christ child in Bethlehem, They say, this is good news of great joy for all the people, because Jesus has come to give you true joy and great abundance. Now, you might say, well, Deemer, this all sounds wonderful, and I believe it, but I still struggle. You say, the bridegroom provides fullness of joy, but I'm depressed. You say, he provides a new heart, but I still struggle with sin. 
You say he provides ultimate satisfaction, and yet I'm still drawn to other things to find satisfaction. Why is that? And the reason why is because we live in a time between times, so to speak. What I mean is, is that Jesus has ransomed us, He has purchased us, He has given us taste and previews of all of these good things, but, but we still await the final consummation between bride and groom at the end of the age where all things will be made perfect. But for now, Jesus, like the ancient Jewish groom, has temporarily gone away to prepare a place in addition to His Father's house, so to speak, uh, prepare a place for us, His bride. Uh, the book of John, again, uses wedding imagery when He quotes Jesus in John 14. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Some of you are troubled right now. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And Jesus, just a few verses after this, tells His disciples, though He is temporarily departing, God will send us another helper, that being the Holy Spirit, to be with us in the interim. And the Spirit will begin to work in our hearts so that we will begin to bear fruit and to, to grow towards perfect joy, perfect love, perfect holiness, perfect hearts. But notice I said we will grow towards those things. We won't reach perfection in this life. We merely begin the journey towards it through the help of the Spirit. And, and growth can hurt. There are growing pains with being a Christian, with growing spiritually. Uh, there will be pain. There will be failures. There will be disappointments with ourselves and with others. There will be an aching and a longing for something more. That's because you were meant for something more. Uh, we all have something more to look forward to. What's happening right now in your life is not the end of the story. And some of you are like, praise God for that. There's more to come. And, and so we can be encouraged that Jesus has saved the best for last. And isn't that what we see in John chapter 2, verses 9 and 10? When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. You have saved the best for last. So we can be confident that there is more to look forward to. The aches and longings we struggle with now will continue for a little while, but they won't last forever. One day the bridegroom will be done in the preparations of that place. The, the preparations began, of course, on the cross and through His resurrection. And then there will come a day where He will return for His bride. And Jesus and the church will be brought together in, the, in, in, in fullness. And we will experience the consummation of all things in Christ. Isaiah says this in chapter 25, 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, there it is again, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people will He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation." And in the final book of the Bible, the Apostle John says something that is almost exactly the same as this, but with a little bit more information. He says in Revelation chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with, him, with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then John closes out the book by quoting Jesus, who says, Surely I am coming soon. And John's response, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, bridegroom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this good word of encouragement in John chapter 2. Jesus has done it all. He has come into this world. He has paid the ransom. He has purchased his bride at the cost of his own blood. And you have come, Jesus and it brought us into your family, into your household. You have cleaned us up. You have washed the dirt and grime off. You have given us beautiful new clothes and have made us your own. And Father, we look forward to that great day where you will send the bridegroom back, back for his bride so that we can experience all that Christ has for us in all of its fullness. Thank you for the glimpses of it that you, get, that you give us now, but we know there's more to come. We know that you've saved the best for last. And so we say with the Apostle John, come Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.